now that you have seen my jacket, I'm going to take it off. <laughs> First Baptist, this is why I don't wear a jacket. Okay. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are already filled with joy as we have gathered and fellowshiped and worshiped through song. Father, now as we turn to your word, we do so in eager anticipation, knowing that you speak through your word. This God is what we, your people, need more than anything to hear from you. And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, We are jumping right into the middle of the life of Abraham. And so... Just to make sure we're all on the same page here, let's just quickly recap where you all have been this summer. Back in Genesis 12, God appears to a pagan idolater named Abram, makes this amazing promise to him to make of him a great nation, to bless all the families of the earth in him. And God reiterates those promises to Abram in Genesis 15. But here's the thing. Abram and his wife, Sarai, they have no children, and they're really old. And so it's like, how are these promises going to be fulfilled? Uh, Don't I need kids for this kind of thing? Like, is this going to come about through my servant, Eliezer? But God says, no, Uh, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Your very own son is the one through whom I'm going to do all these great things. But as Cade covered last week, years and years pass without this very own son, uh, 10 years in the land of Canaan to be precise. And Abram and Sarai, they're not getting any younger. He's 86 now, she's 76. And so Sarai hatches up this plan. Abram's happy to go along with it. Let's take matters into our own hands here. Let's, let's help God out a little bit in fulfilling this promise of his. I'll give you my servant, Hagar. And maybe she can bring about this son. And so a son is born of the slave woman. Call me Ishmael. Well, Abram, there's your very own son. But sin, unbelief, Regardless of how it might practically seem to work out, it's never a good idea. Many of us, unfortunately, know know that all too well from personal experience. And so the result is predictably disastrous. It produces all kinds of jealousy and strife, contention within the family. At least Hagar being driven out into the wilderness, saved only through the direct intervention of God himself. And it results in Ishmael. Ishmael, a man whose hand would be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And so Genesis 16, Sarai, Abram, they take matters into their own hands and it is a disaster. Now look at the very last verse of Genesis 16. 
Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. See how that brings us right into our chapter for the evening, chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old. So let's do some math. In that blank space in your Bibles between chapter 16 and 17, we've got 13 years. 13 long years of Sarai continuing to be barren. Of Abram and Sarai, as a married couple, continuing to be childless together. And that's 13 long years of Abram wondering, did we mess this up? 13 long years of silence from God, but really it goes back even further than that because remember, God does not appear to or speak to Abram in chapter 16. It's only to Hagar that he speaks. It's the last time that God has appeared to and spoken to Abram, at least that's recorded for us in the scriptures. Well, that's all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. That could have been up to 24 years before the events of our chapter. Potentially 24 years of silence. Like, that's a long time. 24 years ago for us, the year was 1999. NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys were huge. SpongeBob just came out on Nickelodeon. Everyone thought the world was going to end because of a computer glitch. And the Mets were a really fun team to watch, right? 24 years is a long time ago. And for a man who's received such great promises from God like Abram, 24 years of silence. That seems like an awfully long time to wait on unfulfilled promises. But, I know it's not literal, but suppose a thousand years is like one day for the Lord. 24 years is like a figurative half hour. It's nothing. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Well, that brings us now to Genesis 17. Hear the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations 
whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who, has not, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. So let's talk about names. Names in our culture, typically the meaning of the name is of secondary importance. Like we pick a name because, I don't know, runs in the family, because it's our favorite baseball player's name, if you're extra sanctified because it's your favorite theologian's name. But more typically, we just pick a name because we like how it sounds. Like those are the primary reasons why we pick names. And the meaning, it's, it's secondary. We just double check on Google, make sure it doesn't come from the Latin for armpit or something like that. <laughs> for us, in our day, the meaning of names is of secondary importance. Rare in our day is the Sunny, soon to be Hewer, whose name defines her character. But in contrast to that, back in the day, especially back in the book of Genesis, the meaning of names was really, really important. A name said something about who you were. A name spoke to your character and your identity. Your name, at least to some degree, defined who you were. I'll give you a quick example from the book of Genesis. The name Jacob means deceiver or supplanter. When Esau discovers that Jacob has cheated him of his blessing, what does he say? Is he not rightly named Jacob? Like, basically, does that name not define who he is? In the days of Genesis, names, the meaning of names, 
is very, very important. Well, Genesis 17, it's, it's one of the most important, most foundational chapters in the Old Testament. It's a chapter about a covenant. It's a chapter about God's promises. It's a chapter about faith. But it's also, did you notice, a chapter about names. Names, new names that were introduced to here for the very first time. Names that then tell the story of covenants and promises and faith. And so tonight I want us to go through what happens here in Genesis 17 by looking at the four names to which we are introduced. We'll start with the first one. It's in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. You look in the footnotes in your Bible, it should say something like Hebrew El Shaddai. So name number one for us is God Almighty or El Shaddai. What we said earlier about names having meaning, that's especially true of the names that God reveals to us in his scriptures. They all reveal aspects of his character. The name El Shaddai, God Almighty, or God who is sufficient, it's a name that highlights his power and his omnipotence that God can do anything. Here's how one commentator put it. El Shaddai is the God who so constrains nature that it does his will and so subdues it that it bows to to subserve grace. And importantly, then, that makes him a God who is able, capable, powerful to keep all of his promises. And so you see why this name is so important in this context. Because remember what we're coming out of in the previous chapter. Abram and Sarai, they think maybe God's hands are tied. God needs their help in order to keep his promise. God can't do it without us. And so they take matters into their own hands through Hagar. God's like, I think I need your help. You thought I lacked the power to fulfill my promise. And so the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And if God is God Almighty, if that's his name, then what kind of response does that require of Abram? Look at the end of verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. That's a phrase there that basically means follow me in wholehearted devotion. Wholehearted devotion, but how? Well, it starts with believing my promises. Something that you've struggled to do in recent days, Abram. Believing my promises precisely because I am God Almighty. The one who's able to keep all of his promises, even some of the unthinkable ones that I'm going to give you later in this chapter. So hopefully you see that this is not God just randomly revealing a name to Abram. This is, this is custom fitted. 
This is tailor-made. This is targeted. This is meaningful. This is a revelation of his awesome, omnipotent power because God knew that that's exactly what Abram needed to hear in that hour so that he could believe those promises. I am God Almighty. That's exactly what Abram needed to hear. And friends, perhaps that's exactly what some of us need to hear tonight. Maybe you're sitting in your pew and you're able to put a smile on your face while you're at church. But beneath the facade, you're just going through a really dark night of the soul. You're in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You're struggling. You're really struggling with doubts that God can keep his promises to you. Like God has promised to never leave nor forsake you. And God has promised to draw near to you if you draw near to him. And God has promised to withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And yet you feel left and forsaken. He seems distant and far. And you're living for him appears entirely unrewarded. And so there is this temptation to turn away from him and to turn towards despondency and sin and compromise. But perhaps what you need is exactly what Abram needed, that God might freshly reveal to you, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. That even in spite of the circumstances, and for Abram, right, it's 24 years of continued infertility, unfulfilled promises, silence from God. And it's like in spite of all of those circumstances, Abram, I am still the all-powerful, all-sufficient God who can keep all of his promises. That's exactly what he needed to hear. And for you... Whatever it is that you're going through in your soul right now, well, you also need to know that you can trust him simply because of who he is. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. He is the God who can keep all of his promises to us. So name number one in our chapter is El Shaddai, God Almighty. It's this God Almighty who, for much of the rest of the chapter, basically reaffirms his covenant with Abram. Now, just to be clear, this is not a separate covenant here in chapter 17. It's really just a confirming and elaborating and clarifying some of the details of the covenant that was established and cut by God himself in chapter 15. And so, for example, you'll see the same themes as chapter 15 of Offspring and nations and the land of Canaan, they're repeated and they're confirmed. But you've also got some new things. You've got this new sign of the covenant, right? circumcision. That's given here, that's new, right? That now every male in Abram's household must be circumcised. And you see that some of the previous promises are kind of expanded upon. Like, 
God has already given Abraham, or Abram rather, the promise all the way back in chapter 12 that he will make of him a great nation, singular. But here, look at verse 4. It's you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, plural. And just in case you weren't paying attention, Abram, God says the same exact thing two more times, once in verse 5, once in verse 6. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you into nations. But remember, our theme of the evening is names. And so notice how in the process of confirming and elaborating and clarifying this covenant, would you look at what God does in verse 5? He changes Abram's name. So that brings us to name number two. It's the name Abraham. Or to be more specific, it's the name change from Abram to Abraham. Why the name change? Well, remember, names had meaning. Abram means exalted father. Let's just pause and just think about that for a moment. Exalted father. So presumably, Abram's father, Terah, he gave him that name at birth, surely with the hope that his son would one day be the father of many. Now, given how important names were in that culture back then. You could just imagine every dinner party that he goes to, like, hi, what's your name? Oh, Abram, exalted father, nice. So how many kids you got, Mr. Exalted Father? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't think it would be too much speculation to say that it would have been a really hard name for him to carry his entire life, given that he and his wife were childless in a culture that saw barrenness as a curse. 99 years of life, and he's got one out-of-wedlock kid. Like, I don't really feel like an Abram, an exalted father. So when God says to him, no longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram must have been like, yes, finally. Like, I can be Bobby or something like that. <laughs> but no, God's going to change his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many nations, father of a multitude. Like, that's a crazy name change. Can you imagine the looks that he got when he told people about his new name? Exalted father was bad enough. Now you want to be called father of many nations. You got one illegitimate child and you want to be called Abraham? Like Rocky Wolford wants to change his name to Abraham? Fine. Right? Like, like I get it. Like he's earned it. But Abram? Seriously? Those of you who are basketball fans, you'll remember the name Ron Artest, a Queens native, best known for going into a stands during a game to fight fans in the wildest brawl in NBA history. Did you know that later in his life, Ron Artest changed his name to Meta World Peace? 
Like sometimes, name changes don't make any sense. And this name change, Genesis 17, makes absolutely no sense. Like it would have been completely absurd unless it was God who changed it. Because when God gives you a name, like that's more than just a father's wishful hope for his baby. When God gives you a name, it's God Almighty's promise that this man would become the father of many nations. And so you see the link between the first two names. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. And therefore, you will be Abraham. It's a promise. And if it's a promise from God Almighty, it's as good as a guarantee. He is going to bring that about. Here's one cool way we can see that played out in this chapter. Look at verse 6. You see that word there, fruitful? I know you guys are good Bible readers. You've read the book of Genesis. You recognize that word, fruitful? The command that was given to Adam at creation, repeated to Noah after the flood, both of them are commanded, be fruitful and multiply. But you'll notice here, Genesis 17, Abraham is not given a command to be fruitful. No, God tells him, I'm going to make you fruitful. And not only that, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. It's not a command. It's a promise. It's as if God is saying, listen, Abraham, it's really not about what you do to try to help me. Like that Ishmael boy over there. This is about me keeping my promise to you as God Almighty. So that promise to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations, like you can take that straight to the bank. But the promise gets even more amazing than that. Because here, Genesis 17, as God is expanding on this covenant, he's going to go further than nations or kings or lands, God makes a promise that's greater than any of those. Look at the end of verse 7. It's the promise to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then it's repeated at the end of verse 8. I will be their God. I think we can be so bold to say that that is the most fundamental promise in the Bible. It is the promise that underlies and undergirds every other promise in the Bible. Like this promise is the essence of covenant. It's the essence of the relationship that God has brought about with man. That God would be our God. Everything else that he gives us, like all of the other promises, are like ancillary or subsidiary promises, benefits of that relationship that we have with God. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this promise, it's all over the Bible. You can trace it straight through from Genesis to Revelation. But this right here, Genesis 17, it's the very first time that God makes this glorious promise to his people. And so, 
Abraham, father of many nations. It's not just that I'm going to give you offspring like the stars in the sky. It's not just that nations are going to come from you. It's that now and forever, I will be your God and your offspring's God. And remember, this isn't Baal or Ashtoreth or Dagon saying this to him like dead gods who can't really do anything. This is El Shaddai. This is God Almighty saying this, committing himself to Abraham to be his God. Name number two in Genesis chapter 17 is the name Abraham. Well, that brings us now to names three and four. We'll treat them together. Sarah and Isaac. Now, here's something I never really realized until I studied this chapter this week. And that's that up to the middle of chapter 17, like all the way up to verse 15, it remains plausible for Abraham to think that Ishmael's still the guy. Like all that stuff about being a father of a multitude of nations, like kings shall come from you, all of those things could potentially be true through Ishmael. Because Ishmael is, in fact, Abraham's son, his direct offspring. And so all of those promises could, in theory, come through Ishmael. Father of a multitude of nations? Well, I, I am Ishmael's father. And look at what God tells Abraham in verse 20. Ishmael's going to be fruitful. He's going to father 12 princes. Like, he's going to be a great nation himself. So up to verse 15, it is entirely possible that God is going to enact all of these promises through Hagar and Ishmael. But no. Look at verses 15 and 16. First God changes Sarai's name to Sarah. So there's name number three. It's another name change from Sarai to Sarah. Uh, both are forms of the word princess. And it's not entirely clear what the difference is. Uh, there seems to be some wordplay with the fact that this princess is now going to uh, bear kings. But look at the next verse. God says of Sarah, not Hagar, Sarah, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Her, 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 she, her, as in Sarah, not Hagar. Sarah is going to bear the son of promise. And Abraham, he is literally floored. Verse 17, he just falls on his face, which, judging from the same action in verse 3, probably is an act of reverence and submission. He falls on his face and he laughs. Now the laughing, sometimes it can be hard to tell why someone is laughing. Ed, back me up on this. We're funny. <laughs> and in our sermons, we make jokes that are funny. But 
But when the people laugh, it's like, are they laughing with me? Or are they laughing against me? And it's not always entirely clear. Sometimes it can be really hard to tell why someone's laughing. Abraham's laugh here. At first glance, it's hard to tell. Like, what is going on here? Is this a laugh of unbelief? Is there something else happening? <laughs> Tidal wave. Tidal wave. Very clear what was happening there, right? So what is going on here with Abraham's laugh? Well, this is where the New Testament is very helpful. If you look over at Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4 is basically an exposition of Genesis 17. And look at what it says there, verses 19 through 21. He, that's referring to Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Clearly, that's talking about Genesis 17. And now look at what it says. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so I think we can deduce from Romans 4 that Abram's laugh in Genesis 17, it's not one of disdain or sneering or utter unbelief. I think it's just his natural reaction to an incredible, inconceivable, like unthinkable promise. Like, wait, what? My, my almost 90-year-old wife, who's been barren her whole life? And my almost 100-year-old body as good as dead? How, how can this be? I thought it was going to be Ishmael. Oh, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. No, God says. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and just so you remember this laughably unthinkable promise that I'm about to bring about, here's name number four. You're going to call his name Isaac. Isaac meaning he laughs. You shall call his name Isaac so that every time you call that boy, every time you say that boy's name, for the rest of your life as his father, you're going to be reminded of the fact that I am God Almighty who can bring about even the most laughably incredible and unthinkable and humanly impossible promises. And Abraham, for his part, got to give him some credit here because here he shows that God's revelation to him earlier as God Almighty well, that seems to have made an impact on him because Abraham fully believes this promise. How do we know that? Well, we could cheat and we could look at Romans chapter 4, those verses that we just read. Abraham is fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. But we don't have to do that if we just stay in Genesis 17 because look at what Abraham does as soon as God departs. He doesn't waver he doesn't say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Now look at verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. 
And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. As God had said to him. It's exactly what God commanded him to do earlier as a sign of the covenant in verses 9 through 14. This covenant, this covenant that he just found out was going to go not through his already alive son, Ishmael, but through his yet-to-be-conceived by his soon-to-be 90-year-old wife, son, Isaac. And so you see, to believe this covenant at this point was to necessarily believe that God was going to do the seemingly impossible, to give old, barren Sarah a baby. Basically, what Abraham does here in verses 23 through 27 circumcising every male in his house, both his own family and his servants, as a sign of the covenant, what he does here proves that he really does believe God's promises. Without going into too much detail here, this isn't exactly easy obedience. This is before anesthesia and medical technologies, all that kind of stuff. This is costly obedience. And not just for him, it's costly for every male in his household. Ed, you made the point a couple of weeks ago that Abraham's clan isn't just a few dudes hanging out. This is hundreds and hundreds of people, right? There's 318 fighting men. They're all getting circumcised. This is costly. This is involved obedience. But even more notably... And look at how Moses draws special attention to this. It's immediate obedience. It's not like Abraham waited until Sarah got pregnant to perform these circumcisions. Now look at the end of verse 23. There's three really important words there. That very day. Immediate obedience. And just in case you missed it the first time, look again in verse 26. Same three words. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. It certainly would have been easier for Abraham to undertake such costly obedience himself and for him to make everybody in his household undertake such costly obedience if he could at least point to a baby bump and say, there is the son of promise. Right? That's what I've been talking about. That's Isaac. But no, look at verse 21. Sarah's going to bear a child at this time next year. Even with five kids, I know nothing about parenting. But I do know this. This time next year means it's going to be at least three months until Sarah would even get those two little pink lines on that pregnancy test. But that's faith. Simply believing God's promises. Taking God at his word. Trusting God's revealed plan. Trusting that when God says, I will, like he does 11 times in this chapter, that God always keeps his promises. And then expressing that trust through diligent, immediate obedience. That's the kind of obedience James would later talk about, the obedience apart from which faith is dead. 
Genesis 17. It's a chapter in which four names, God Almighty, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, those four names that were introduced to here, they basically tell its story. Abraham, he's struggling, waiting on God's promises, and so God reveals his name is God Almighty, El Shaddai. Abraham, you can trust me. You can take me at my word because I can keep all my promises. And so you are no longer going to be called Abram. Your new name is Abraham, father of a multitude, because I'm going to keep my promises to you. But my promises aren't going to be fulfilled the way you designed through Hagar. No, they're coming through Sarai, whose new name is now Sarah, because kings shall come from her. Yeah? That's a laughably impossible promise, but just so you'll never forget that I am a God who can do laughably impossible things, that I am God Almighty, you're going to name him Isaac. And then Abraham shows his faith in the promises of God Almighty with regards to Sarah and Isaac by obediently having all the males in his household circumcised just like God commanded that, brothers and sisters, is Genesis chapter 17. But friends, I remind you that we need to be really careful when we study a passage like this because it's all too easy to treat passages like this almost like a historical study. Like, here's some facts about people who lived thousands of years ago, and and here's some events that happened thousands of years ago. Like, if we're not careful it can begin to feel very distant and unapplicable and just irrelevant to us. But that would be a big mistake because the Old Testament, and more specifically the book of Genesis, and more specifically Genesis chapter 17, well, it was written and preserved for us like God speaks to us through this passage. Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in former days, like Genesis 17, was written for our instruction that through endurance, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So here's the question I want to finish with tonight. Where do we find hope in this chapter? Well, I think it starts with realizing that we're not all that unlike Abraham. And our faith is not all that unlike Abraham's. You see, Abraham was given the promise of this covenant, a promise of a nation, land, God's presence. And he, even though the odds were stacked against him, so to speak, a child from a barren 90-year-old woman, even though it seemed impossible, he believed God. Well, similarly, you and I, we've been given promises in the new covenant God promises us in his word that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from your sin, saved from the eternal wrath of hell that we deserve, saved for an eternity with him in his presence. And quite honestly, if you really understand the depravity of your sin, Like, if you know the depths of your rebellion, if you recognize the magnitude of the awful things that you have done and said and thought, the fact that a wretched sinner like you or me 
could actually be saved and made right with a perfectly holy God. That's a lot more outlandish and unthinkable of a promise than a 90-year-old barren woman giving birth. And not only is it more outlandish and unthinkable, it's also far more costly. Because for God to create physical life in a barren 90-year-old woman's womb, he simply spoke and it came to pass. That's what happens here in Genesis 17. But for God to bring about spiritual life in our dead souls, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, he couldn't simply speak it. That was a holy and just God. He had to send his own son to be the propitiation of our sins. And in order to bring that about, It wasn't a barren old woman's womb that was miraculously given life. It was a virgin teenager overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. You see, Mary learned the same lesson there in Luke chapter 1 that Abraham learned here in Genesis 17. Nothing will be impossible with God. Translation, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. And so you see, what we have here in Genesis 17, look at verse 19. Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. That's a foreshadowing of the promised son to come. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. See, that miraculously conceived child of promise He would live the perfect life that we never could. He would suffer the wrath of God in our place. He would die the death that we deserved and then be raised for our justification. But why would God go to such great lengths to save sinners like us? Why? The answer? Well, go figure. It's also in Genesis chapter 17. Look at Genesis 17, 7. God promises to Abraham to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Who are Abraham's offspring? Paul tells us, Galatians 3, 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. That's us. And so it's to us that God promises, Genesis 17, 8, I will be their God. Dear Christian, how can you be assured that your sins are forgiven? How can you know that God loves you? How can you be confident of eternal life? The answer is that El Shaddai, the almighty God who keeps all of his promises, has promised in Christ to be your God. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a promise that's good from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17, all the way to the end, Revelation 21. This is how it all ends. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, that's what Abraham saw in his day, and he was glad. 
that's our only hope in life and death as well. Father, what a glorious passage with glorious promises for your people. Father, grant us the faith to receive such glorious promises in Christ, in whom we have all things. Amen. 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 Praise God. So, so the gospel in and of itself is beautiful, but when we shine a light on it in different ways at different times, it, in our eyes, becomes more beautiful. And how beautiful <laughs> was that presentation of the gospel, that angle, that light?